come to the passage that I'll be looking at, and I am going to just be focusing my attention on verses 20 through to verses 28. The title of my message is very simply, Christ the First Fruits of the Resurrection, and I, I wanted to spend some time on this, uh, just uh, plowing into this a bit more deeply to understand a little more of the richness and the fullness of the resurrection of our Saviour. So the context that we find ourselves in right now is Paul's letter to the Corinthian church and as I, I know that many of you know this, that there were a group within that church that really denied the resurrection of the body. They, they had been influenced by a kind of philosophy in their day and time that, that really uh, saw that, uh, the, that there was no necessity to believe in a physical resurrection of the body. They believed in the resurrection of Jesus, but they didn't believe in any kind of resurrection of the body. And so Paul is really aggressively showing how that belief was really anti-gospel. How he was showing that to deny the resurrection of the body is really, in essence, to deny the gospel itself. Now, to be sure, they weren't denying eternal life. They weren't denying the spiritual life in heaven forever. They were simply saying that the body, the physical body, is not raised up. And that's what they'd come to believe. They'd been affected by wrong thinking, by wrong teaching, by bad philosophy. And so, in this chapter of chapter 15... We have Paul laying out his case, and it's a glorious and wonderful, unparalleled, unparalleled case for bodily resurrection. One cannot be a believer without believing in the resurrection of Christ, because as Romans 10 verse 9 and 10 says, If you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and confess him as Lord, you'll be saved. So you cannot be a Christian if you deny the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. One cannot be saved unless there is an affirmation of the bodily resurrection of Christ, and that is part of the gospel. Now in the first 11 verses of chapter 15, Paul laid that out. He actually tells us what the gospel is. He lays it out in a very simple, succinct way. Verse 3, For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. So if that happened, beloved, how then could these believers, these People who profess that they love Christ and believe Christ, how could they deny or question the bodily, bodily resurrection? Paul is really saying to them, it makes no sense that you, this is what you're holding. Because you already believe in Christ's bodily resurrection. And if you believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus, why should your own bodily resurrection be such a problem as to bring you to want to deny this? And having laid out the reality of Christ's resurrection in verse 1 to 11, beginning from verse 12, Paul lays out this case in a masterful flow of logic. He shows 
the consequence, the devastating consequence of denying bodily resurrection. Look at verse 13, for example. He says, if dead men don't rise, there is no resurrection of the dead. Then what? Well, remember his flow. Christ is not risen if dead men don't rise. And if Christ is not risen, all gospel preaching is useless. Your faith is empty. It's pointless. We apostles are liars. We are yet all in our sins. And dead Christians are damned because they are in their sins. And Christians are of all people in the world the dumbest and the most to be pitied if dead men don't rise. So he starts out with a positive affirmation that there is a bodily resurrection and that to deny that would really ultimately be to deny the resurrection of Christ himself. That's a consequence of holding that bad philosophy or that bad theology. He then goes on and he shows in a very practical way the disaster that ensues when you don't hold to a bodily resurrection. All of the Christian gospel and all of the divine plan of redemption falls apart from it. It crumbles. You knock the foundation out from underneath it and it crumbles if there is no bodily resurrection. So we come to verse 20 and here is an important transition. And the transition begins with the word but. Another way of putting the transition would be therefore, but we have this word but now. Christ is risen from the dead. So that's the statement. And then goes on and he unpacks what that means. He launches the section from verse 20 to 29. He makes the statement of affirmation and now he unpacks it. And we read, but now Christ has risen from the dead and has become firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive, but each one in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, afterward those who are Christ at his coming. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death, for he has put all things under his feet. So here Paul tells us that the last enemy to be dealt with is death. He has put, once he has put all things under subjection, under his feet, death will be the final thing he will deal with. Now when he talks about all things in subjection what that means is that Christ's work has been accepted Christ is the one who's been given the power and the authority to do all of that he is the one who has been given the task by God to bring all things into subjection to him that is God 
And when all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, so that God may be all in all. That's what the text says. Now what you have here, beloved, is God's redemptive plan taken to its consummation. And Paul is showing us that central to it is the resurrection. Central to it is the resurrection. This is precisely a passage, a text that describes the living of the church in the midst of a time of spiritual resurrection, between the resurrection of Christ and the final resurrection of the redeemed. That is the period, that is the time in which you and I live today. So let us begin with that statement. Let us consider what Paul is saying here. Now is Christ risen from the dead. Paul is saying to them, brethren, you know it. You believe it. You have affirmed it. It cannot be denied. And he takes us back to that eyewitness that we read about in the early part of the chapter. He's, he's reflecting on it. You know it. You saw it with your eyes, as it were. Verse 5 tells us, This Jesus, our Savior, appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve, and then to more than 500 brethren at one time, then to James, and then to all the apostles, and finally to one untimely born, that was one Apostle Paul himself. These eyewitnesses attest to the validity of the resurrection. Folks, we cannot underestimate how important it is to read these words and to think about them because they are attesting to the validity of the resurrection. The resurrection is a historical fact rooted in time and history. And they believe it when it comes to Christ. Now he wants to take them to real life that the only logical outcome of that belief is to believe in their own resurrection. That it is very relevant and very pertinent with regards to their own hope. Everything in God's plan demands the resurrection. There is no such thing as just a spiritual resurrection. It is a physical resurrection. It happened on a physical day in time and space. Not only the resurrection of Christ, the first fruits, but the resurrection of believers as well. The whole redemptive plan is dependent on a bodily resurrection of Christ and of all who believe. If Christ is risen, friends, that you and I are sitting here, as surely as we are sitting here, as surely as we are sitting here on this day, on these benches, as surely as we are breathing this air, we will rise from the dead. We will rise from the dead. Which echoes the very words of our Lord Jesus, who said to his disciples in John 14, Because I live, you will live also. That is very relevant for us in the current world of death in which we live. But now Christ is risen for the, from the dead. And the, the language here is the perfect tense verb. 
And it's in that form because it conveys the fact that not only did he rise, but he continues to live. He continues to live. He was raised and he continues to be alive. Jesus' resurrection is not like the resurrection of Jairus. It's not like the resurrection of Lazarus. Those men were raised from the dead, but they died again. Jesus has been risen. His body is risen, never to die again. He was risen never to die. And that is the foundation of the gospel. Now what he does in the text ahead of us is he simply unfolds for us how critical resurrection is the redemption plan of God. And there are three parts to it. The first part is we see the Redeemer. The second part is we see the redeemed. And the third part is we consider the redemption. So we see the Redeemer. We speak about the redeemed. And then we'll talk about the redemption. So let's pause just for a minute and ask the Lord to help us. Our Lord, we pray for your help now. Our bellies are full, Lord. Our bodies are tired. But we need your Spirit to help us. Help us to listen. Help us to draw from your word the strength and the encouragement and the blessing you desire for us to receive. And apply this to our hearts that our lives would be filled with hope. And that we would be encouraged in this difficult world in which we live in. And that we would bring glory and honor to your name for the sake of Christ Jesus. Amen. So we have the Redeemer. We have the Redeemer. Look at verse 20. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Everybody understood in the day and age in which Paul was writing what first fruits were. It was a quite the agrarian world. It was part of the agrarian terminology. It was part of, of that language. And it wasn't just in Israel, but the Gentiles understood they were very much a society rooted and ground in farming and that kind of an agrarian world. Everybody understood that. And everybody understood that first fruits were the first elements of the crop to be harvested. And when the first fruits came in, you knew this is a good sign. The rest of the crop is on the way. The Jews in particular would be familiar with this. And remember that there are many Jews that were converted and who were in the Corinthian church. They had been a product of Paul's ministry in Corinth. They knew that a first fruit offering was ordered by God Back in Leviticus 23 verse 10, you shall bring the sheep of the first fruits of your harvest. And so this was the sign of the harvest to come. In a sense, a guarantee, a kind of a guarantee of the harvest to come. And Paul is saying, the light of Christ's resurrection, this is a guarantee of the full resurrection harvest. It is a guarantee of the full resurrection harvest. As he comes to life in the way that plants come to life out of dead seeds buried in the ground. And Jesus even referred to himself in that way. Remember how he spoke about the fact that he was like a seed buried in the ground? In the Gospel of John, 
And if he did not die, he would not produce fruit. So from that seed buried in the ground would spring forth into life a great harvest. And as he comes to life, he guarantees that the full harvest will come in the future. The resurrection of Jesus Christ, then, beloved, is a glorious sign. It is a wonderful pledge. It is a guarantee for the resurrection of all believers, which is to come. It is worthy to be remembered every week, as long as we live. And just as the rest of the harvest couldn't be made without the first fruits, so the final harvest, the resurrection of all believers, cannot come until the one who guarantees that resurrection has come to life. Think about this. Was not Christ the first one to rise again? He was. And others were raised to life. But the significant difference about Christ's resurrection from the dead is that Jesus did not die again. He did not die again. Where is Jesus? He is in heaven. That's why, again, the ascension took place on the first day of the week. That's a continuation. He died, was raised to life, and he ascended and is in heaven and he lives for us. And he is guaranteeing for us a kind of resurrection. Not the kind of resurrection like the resurrection that Lazarus faced. Or even the kind of resurrection that we saw with Eutychus this morning. No friends. A kind of resurrection like his resurrection. Where our bodies will be raised up and our bodies will never ever taste death again. This is precisely why our Lord Jesus said when he was talking to the Jews in John's Gospel, he said this, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me shall never die. And so what we have here, we have here then is the foundation. We have here is the, the basis, the core of our own resurrection and the resurrection of Christ. Now this is not the only place that Jesus is spoken of as being the first fruits or identified as being the first fruits and the guarantee. In Colossians chapter 1 verse 18, the Greek word that's used is the word protokos, protokos. And it means the firstborn from the dead. The first one from the dead, or the primary one from the dead. In Revelation chapter 1 verse 5 again, the same Greek word, protokos, from the dead. The premier one, the first one. And here again in our text, he is the first fruits of those who are asleep. That's a beautiful way of referring to death for the Christian. Because death for the Christian is quite literally like sleeping. Now, I'm not talking about soul sleep, because that's unbiblical. But our bodies sleep. Our bodies sleep. That's what it means when we refer to the death for believers. 
and, and, and it specifically relates it in a sense to the body. It refers to the body and not the soul. When you die, you are absent from the body, but you are present with the Lord. That Paul puts it this way. He says, far better for me to depart and be with Christ. And then he says, in, he says that in 2 Corinthians and Philippians. He says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. But the body sleeps. The body that is sown in destruction sleeps. And so the guarantee is that because Christ rises, our bodies will rise as well. Now that poses a question. Why are we to understand that? Why are we to understand this? Or how are we to understand this? Let me put it to you that way. That one man's resurrection could have such an effect on us. Well, Paul's answer to that is a very familiar answer. Look, if you will, at verse 22. This is what he says. And it's in principle, the answer that he gives us is an illustration. Look at it. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. You see what Paul is doing here? He is using an analogy between Adam and Christ. Why? What's significant about Adam and Christ? Well, Adam is the head of what? The natural order. The natural order. Christ is the head of what? He is the head of the spiritual order. The first Adam and the second Adam. And to prove the point that the act of one man can have an impact on others, this is what Paul does. He makes that analogy. He makes that connection. This is the principle. This is a major point for him. You see, Paul is dealing with these Corinthians, and the, the Corinthians may be saying things like this. Okay, Paul, we know that Christ rose from the dead. We affirm that. But Paul, just because this happened doesn't mean that will happen. How is it that his resurrection guarantees ours? How is, it that, how is that possible? How does that happen? And the first place Paul goes to is he goes to Adam. Because he wants to show that the act of one man can have, can affect many. When Adam sinned, he plunged all of mankind into sin. You see, friends, in Adam there was a far-reaching causal relationship between the death of him and the death of his descendants. He was our head, our federal head. When he died, we all died in Adam. As in Adam, all what? All die. So here's the truth. Here's the reality. The sin of Adam catapulted the whole human race and every human that would ever be born into the reality of death. You are all of us. You are all, every one of us, born in death. All of us come under the administration of death. There is a causal relationship between the death of Adam and every other person. Now they knew that. They understood that. 
And what we come to understand by this is that all men sinned in Adam. Now there's another place where Paul references this. It's not just here in 1 Corinthians. In fact, it's probably the most best known place. And it's in Romans chapter 5 verse 12. We can't go there. We don't have the time. But there it tells us all the rest was in his loins. And when he sinned, we all sinned in him. And we all died. And so let us be clear, beloved. From Adam on, there is solidarity of guilt. Solidarity of fallenness. Solidarity of corruption. We possess this because we are the offspring of Adam. We are his posterity. We inherit in him a nature that is fallen and sinful and dying. But, says Paul, then came Christ. And with Christ, that awful chain of death was broken. Christ, the second Adam, pays the penalty for our sin. He conquers death on our behalf and death is overwhelmed and overpowered as this chapter unfolds. Death is literally swallowed up by life in Christ. It is a glorious picture. Death has lost its sting. Death has lost its power. You see, Christ has fulfilled all the law. He has fulfilled the administration of death. Therefore, death loses its power. And all who put their trust in Christ, all who are part of His spiritual seed, receive from Him resurrection unto life. They are new creations, just like Him. That's the whole point that Paul is making here. Look at verse 22. For as in Adam all die, so even in Christ all shall be made alive. Union with Adam. All who are in union with Adam die. All who are in union with Christ live. All who are in union with Adam are so by natural descent. All who are in union with Christ are so by spiritual descent. Or put it another way. All in Adam are in Adam by natural generation. All who are in Christ are in Christ by spiritual regeneration. That's why this is a spiritual seed. Not a physical seed. All who are in Adam have the common factor of sin. But all who are in Christ possess the common factor of life. All in Adam die. All in Christ live. And so friends, in the light of those glorious and wonderful truths, you can ask the question, and it's a good question. What is the effect of Christ's death on our death? How does that affect you? How does it affect me? Well, this is the effect. We die in Him. And we are raised up in Him. And the impact of the resurrection is that he is the first fruit. He is the first one who guarantees our resurrection. Beloved, we of all people have glorious hope. 
because in man there is a real man who is in heaven interceding for us. With a risen, resurrected, glorified body, he is the first fruits, and it will happen to us. So that's the Redeemer. But let me move on to the redeemed. Look at verse 23. But each in his own order. It doesn't happen in a twinkling of an eye, in a flash. One day it will in the sense of we'll all be transformed in the twinkling of an eye. But there is an order to this. In fact, the word order here in the Greek is the word tagma. And it literally has this idea of a, it's a military term. It refers to a detachment of soldiers. If you've ever seen the royal army or something, and you'll see them all in their different orders, and their different ranks, and their different, and their different regiments. That's the idea here. There is this order, there is this marching in sequence. There's a lineup, there's a process. First, Christ, the first fruits, verse 23. Christ the first fruits, he comes first, and after those who are Christ. And when is our resurrection? What does it say? It says at the end of the verse. When is our resurrection? At his coming. At his coming. As someone once said, we live between the already but not yet. We live between the two Easter's. And in the middle are all the spiritual resurrections that occur at salvation. It is one harvest in a sense. It is the resurrection unto righteousness. But Christ is the first fruit, followed afterward by the rest of the harvest. And the rest of the harvest comes at His coming. The Christian hope, of course, is the coming of Christ at the end of the age. In fact, the Greek word that's used here is the word parousia. That's why in Thessalonians we read of the believers that they eagerly awaited the appearing of their Savior. That's why we gather together on the Lord's Day to remind one another of that hope and to stir one another up so that we would all be stirred up to eagerly await the, the presence or the arrival or the fulfillment of our Lord Jesus Christ as He returns. Because when He returns, all of the redeemed will occur when Christ arrives. We will all, we will all be raised up in those perfect bodies. Those of us who are living will be caught up into the heavens. Those of us who are dead will be caught up. We will all be caught up to meet Him and we'll all have our resurrected bodies. But this is the time of first fruits, beloved. Since heaven is a place where no time exists, there is no such concept as waiting. So there are those who are in heaven now, and they are the spirits of just men made perfect. And the glorious thing is when Christ returns, they'll come with him, and their bodies and them will be united. And those of us who are living will be caught up together in that glorious end that great day of the Lord when the resurrection will take place. At the return of Christ, there will be this great resurrection of the godly of all the ages. The scripture speaks of it. When we gather together, we testify to it. It is the resurrection of life. It is the first resurrection. It is what our gathering together every Lord's Day primes us for. The 
there is another resurrection that will take place. And that is the resurrection of the damned. But they will not be raised up to life. They will be raised up to judgment. And they will be cast into hell and separated from God forever. And they will live forever. But they will live under the judgment of God forever. But this first resurrection of which Paul is testifying to is the resurrection of the redeemed, including Christ, the first fruits, and the rest that is coming. And this is where those believers who are dead are raised up and those who are alive are caught up into glory to meet the Lord Jesus when he comes with all his angels in glory. And when Paul says this, he compresses it into these three words, at his coming. These are the stages in the resurrection. First, Christ's resurrection. Then our resurrection. And the resurrection of the dead. So we've seen something of the redeemed, the redeemer, and something of what Paul says about the redeemed. But let me finally draw your attention to one more thing in the text. Redemption. I believe this is the heart of what Paul is speaking about here. We have the redeemer and his resurrection. The redeemed and their resurrection are implied in his coming. And when we go to the redemption, in one phrase, Paul captures the redemption. You know what phrase it is? Then comes the end. Then comes the end. I think the word end over here is a very inadequate word. The Greek word is and it means the fun finale. It, it end is just kind of a little. Then the end, you know, <laughs> it's just not adequate. The goal, the purpose, the reason, the crescendo, the design of all history and creation is pictured and captured here by Paul. The goal, the objective, the consummation of all things. That is what Paul is writing about here. That is what is pictured in the resurrection. When he that is Christ hands over the kingdom to God, to the God and Father, and when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power, Christ is in the process of bringing all these authorities, all this rule under his power. He's bringing them all under his feet. The text tells us he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. For he has put all things in subjection under his feet. Beloved, that is the goal. That is the hope of the consummation. Let me ask you a question. Maybe you're sitting here and you say, that's all good and well, Pastor. What does that mean for me? Well, here's my question. If I were to speak to you after the service and were to ask you the question, what is the purpose of 
the whole created order. What is the purpose of the new creation? What is the purpose of redemption? Why does God allow us to go through all these trials? And some of us go through horrendous trials. Some of us lose loved ones. Some of us are falsely accused and go through great trials and persecution. What is the purpose of all of that? Why does God tolerate everything that he has tolerated through all of human history? Why? Don't you ask yourself that question? Isn't that the one question that kind of burns at the bottom of your soul? For what purpose? What is it all for? Well, beloved, here Paul answers that for us. He tells us it is so that he can give to his son a kingdom. So that he can give to his son a kingdom made up of people who love him and worship him and adore him and serve him forever in perfect joy and perfect peace with perfect purity. I even so say, beloved, that is why gathering together every Lord's Day is a, is a small portion of that. It's a small taste of it. How many of you, how many of you, when you're not able to come and worship with God's people on the Lord's Day, how many of you feel like you're dry and you're worn out and it's like, oh, I miss the Lord's Day. I miss being with God's people. I haven't been for two weeks and it's just like, Why do we come together, friends? We come together to be reminded, to point one another to that glorious hope, to that glorious reality that this world in its old corrupted order will one day be wrapped up, where there will no longer be sin, where these painful, difficult things that we go through are all producing in us one glorious end to glorify, to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, beloved, what we see here is the goal. This is the goal that is, that, is, that is set before us in the resurrection. Christ is capturing his kingdom, a kingdom of resurrected human beings, redeemed of all the angels, the church, the Old Testament saints, and then the saints who die in this present age. They are all raised now, and they are all in heaven. And then comes the end. Then comes the day of all days, from the Lord's day to the day to end all days. And that is when this text says, He hands over the kingdom to God, to the God and Father. Paul tells us when. Not until he has abolished all rule and all authority and power. And this text tells us he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. I don't know how he'll do that, friends. I don't know. But he says he will. And he says one day that the knowledge of God will cover the earth as the waters cover the seas. I cannot tell how he'll do that. I cannot tell how he will win the nations. I don't know what that looks like. But you can be sure of this. No matter where you stand on that subject, 
because there, there is a risen Savior in heaven. One day you will be raised up. And one day you will be part of that glorious consummation when faith will become sight. plan of redemption. Redemption itself is not complete until there are no more enemies of God and Christ in existence to tamper with his purpose. No more trouble, no more trials, no more sin, no more interfering parents who perhaps hate you for your Christianity or interfering people who hate you for your Christianity and who want to do you harm. And when that day comes, those who are raised up, who are not part of the righteous, they will be judged and cast forever into the lake of fire. They will be bound there with Satan and his angels for whom he was originally created. And they will dwell there forever, never again to impede the purposes of God. Beloved, I must bring my, my message to a conclusion. But when that happens, and the language is comprehensive, when he has abolished all rule, all rule means that there is no other rule other than himself. He is called in Revelation, King of Kings and Lord of Glory. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the beginning and the end. Beloved, Christ will destroy all his enemies. The last one to go will be death. There's a graphic picture that Paul paints before us here. All of his enemies put under his feet, subjugated, brought under complete control, completely suppressed. All of these things, these powers and principalities will be torn down. And they will be laying, strewn, destroyed at the feet of Christ. Look at verse 27. For he has put all things under his feet. But when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he put all things under him. Is the one whom God has accepted. Is his own son. And so let me close. The resurrection of Christ then guarantees our resurrection and ultimately guarantees the abolishing of death. And when that happens, our text tells us he will then take the kingdom and all that the Father has given to him and he will give it back to the Father in reciprocal inter-trinitarian love. See, the Father gave to him a people. He gave to him a posterity. And what does he do? He gives those same people back to the Father, spotless and without blemish. Beloved, let me say this to you. This is the great comfort of our salvation. No matter what you're struggling with, no matter what your difficulty is in this world, no matter whether it is your own personal struggles, your own heart and your own sin, be assured of this. When you began the good work and you will be faithful to complete it. Sin will have no dominion over you. You know how I know that? Because Christ the, the, Christ the first fruits is raised from the dead. And because he is in heaven, 
and he will come back and he will present us before the Father spotless and without blemish. Our Father, we thank you for this wonderful passage of Scripture. We thank you that by the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, the first fruits, we are gloriously reminded of that wonderful hope that we have in Christ. And we are reminded that he who began this good first, this good work in us will be faithful to complete it. We don't see it yet, Lord, but the day will come when all of the enemies that we face in this world will lay defeated and destroyed at your feet. Father, we pray that you would help us. The day will come and Lord, you will give to your Father all of these things. And you, O oh God, as the scripture says, will become all in all because the Son has given back what you have given to him in submission. What a glorious picture of completion. And Lord, we just pray that any here this afternoon who do not know you, who have not yet bowed the knee, Lord, let them bow the knee now before that day comes when they will bow the knee because of terror that they will be cast out forever and there will be no hope for them. Oh Lord, we thank you for this glorious hope in Christ. 